Welcome back to Footsteps in the Attic, the podcast dedicated to all things strange and paranormal. And it is fall season. It is Halloween season. So I thought tonight we would dive into a topic, which is a sequel of a topic I delved into last year, which was a look into the filming of Ghostbusters with the friendship I have formed with Miss Jennifer Runyon, who I love with all my heart, I was inspired to do an episode on the sequel to Ghostbusters, Ghostbusters 2. But we're not going to go over significant um, plot points and what happened within the film. Most of you have seen it. I want to go more into the production side of things, more into some trivia facts you may not know about the filming, the behind the scenes, goings on, and we're going to do an overview, just a nutshell, not um, something that's going to cause your ears to explode with just an hour of rambling. This will be a much more condensed, but hopefully entertaining version. So Ghostbusters, of course, was the top selling comedy film at the time of all time. Um, released in 1984, and of course, executives wanted to fast-track a sequel. Well, Bill Murray had taken um, absence, an absence from acting after the, well, critical success of the first Ghostbusters film, but actually critical somewhat failure of his dramatic pet project, which is Razor's Edge, and he was so dismayed by the poor showing of that film that he took five years off of acting, which of course put a big pause on a sequel to Ghostbusters because Murray's involvement was of course considered critical to any sequels that may occur. So as you can imagine, um, the studio really wanted that sequel made. There were some ideas floated, but nothing really came to fruition. There was also, I should mention, some tension between core cast members. So as badly as a studio may have wanted a sequel, um, everybody had to get on the same page and want that to happen. Uh, Finally, there were talks going on in 1987. Uh, The film went into production in 1988 and was released in 1989 on June 16th um, with a budget of 30 to 40 million. Now you think, well, they were some pretty big stars. How did they get the budget so cheap? Um, The core cast members agreed to a percentage of the box office gross roughly 10% apiece, so that could equate to many more millions of dollars, especially if you try to compare it to the success of the first Ghostbusters film. Now, unfortunately, when all was said and done, the film only grossed, well, I should say only, which is still considered a success to any of us, $215.4 million, but to the studios and the audience's By and large, the film was considered somewhat of a failure. Um, Hey, they still get a nice paycheck out of it, especially today. I think the film has bounced back and the actors are quite happy with the paychecks they've gotten in residuals. But um, at the time, it wasn't great. And it was also made during a time where sequels were not very 
common, especially to blockbuster films. And they had the unpleasurable task of competing with Batman, which was released at the very same time. So, of course, Ghostbusters did not uh, scare up the audience, pun intended. But um, let's see, Ramis and Aykroyd collaborated on the script, and of course it went through many variations. I'm going to go more in-depth as to Dan Aykroyd's first vision for the film in just a little bit, but it is kind of out there. But Aykroyd, he's brilliant. I mean, he's a genius, but some of his ideas can fly off the handle a little bit, like the first Ghostbusters film, for those of you who hadn't listened to that episode where I kind of took a deep dive into it, Aykroyd wanted to make them interstellar time travelers where they're fighting spirits both on this plane and in the intergalactic realm. So it was uh, it was a little out there. But finally, Ramis, who was always good at sort of reining Aykroyd in, said he wanted a message about consequences of negative human emotions in large cities. And they settled on the idea of negative feelings creating a mass of supernatural slime beneath New York City that emboldens the evil and malevolent spirits. Um, Filming took place between November 1988 and March 1989 in New York and L.A., The one scene which sticks out, which I can tell you was definitely filmed in Los Angeles, was the pothole scene where they're drilling and want to go underneath the city. So they used a lot of exterior shots uh, in New York City. I believe they were there for two weeks. I did not write that fact down, but I believe it was two weeks of shooting in New York and the rest was Los Angeles. So you can imagine they... um, You know, they kind of picked their shots with what they were going to film in New York. Um, Not to do too much of a time jump, but I should say that there were large sections of the film that were scrapped um, post-production after they received poor test screenings when everything was said and done. So there were some reshoots done between uh, New York and L.A. Um, Again, Ghostbusters... Sadly, received a lot of negative reviews, uh, although Peter McNichol's performance as Janosch uh, stood out and was looked at very favorably among test audiences, and so was Rick Moranis, of course. But, I mean, we all love Rick Moranis. Come on, he was he was fantastic. I mean, uh, I think I shared this story, but one of my first experiences when I had moved to New York was standing next to Rick Moranis um, as I was across the street from Madison Square Garden and he was with his children and I just couldn't help but uh, think of Ghostbusters. So it was a really cool moment for me. Um, there were producer, there was one producer in particular, um, I'm forgetting his name, I believe his name was Putnam. Uh, he was not a big fan of making a Ghostbusters sequel, but... Um, When Ivan Reitman was on board and they were able to get Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis together, who at the time had creative differences and I think some personal differences, uh, when they felt good about this dinner, as a matter of fact, I believe the studio paid 
for them to go on this expensive dinner out in Hollywood, they agreed to work together again. They had a good feeling about working with each other, so they really wanted to make it happen. And um, again, I think uh, Dan Aykroyd has a has a good um, effect on Bill Murray, and I think he uh, came around and said, "Hey, you know what? I want to jump back into the Ghostbusters universe." But again, Bill Murray is a is a tough egg. You know, you really have to work to uh, to to get him into your film. Um, there's a famous story. I don't know how many of you know this, but when you want Bill Murray in your film, he does not have an agent, so he acts as his own agent. So if you want to get Bill Murray in your film, you have to somehow reach Bill Murray. And if he likes your idea, he will give you his card and um, he will say, contact me. There was one famous story about a producer who really wanted Murray in his film. And I believe Bill Murray was, he was flying to China or something like that. It was some international flight. He said, hey, if you really want me on, want me in your film, you got to take this flight with me and convince me to do this film on the way to wherever he was going. And the producer did it and uh, he got Murray in his film. So that was pretty cool. So I'm going to throw out some random facts about Ghostbusters 2. And uh, again, I don't want to hit you over the head with a long expose on Ghostbusters. I think it's better to do a nutshell version of the sequel since we kind of took a deep dive into the first one. But I had mentioned earlier on Dan Aykroyd's take on the original script, and this was the idea that he had originally proposed for Ghostbusters 2. He wanted to make the film stand apart from the original by moving the action out of New York City, which already, to me, sounds like a bad idea. Um, And he wanted to take the crew to Scotland, with the idea being that Sigourney Weaver's character Dana had been kidnapped by subterranean fairy folk. And eventually, uh, yeah, that's as far out as as you would expect um, it would be. I can't imagine what that script looked like. And I believe he realized this not only is too far out there, but the budget, can you imagine flying to Scotland and the whole crew uh, would be outrageous. So he uh, realized, hey, there might be some comfort for the core audience to keep it in New York City. And I believe that was the right call. Now, the original script did have a much longer... Uh, love story between Bill Murray and Dana, a.k.a. Sigourney Weaver, with the idea being that Oscar in the original draft would have been their love child. But I think Harold Ramis thought that was a little too cliche and that it would take up too much time and attention to do a full-on love story where Bill Murray and Dana are still together and they're raising this child. I think they wanted a more original take. So they agreed that they would be estranged in this film and write it from that perspective. And I I think that was the right call. Um, um, Apparently, Harold Ramis had an idea about the, the child Oscar from a film he had been working on where this supernatural child has these abilities well beyond his age And so that's where he got the idea of putting a baby into the script. 
Um, one of my favorite random facts about the movie, um, Vigo, of course, the master of evil, Vigo the Carpathian was the main villain in it, and it was played by diehard actor Wilhelm von Humburg, who was a very tough man in real life. I believe he was even a professional wrestler and boxer at one point. Um, he was cast, and he did the voiceover, the voice acting all the way through. Well, let's fast forward to the premiere. Homburg sits down in the theater, and the movie starts, and Max von Sydow, who we all know from The Exorcist, is doing his voiceover parts. So they had completely edited Wilhelm's dialogue out of the movie, put another actor in to do all the voiceover work, and did not tell him. He was so angry, he stormed out of the theater and I believe refused to watch the film. Now, I have to say, as somebody who's been in the acting world and has done voiceover work, I would have been pissed if somebody did that to me and did not tell me. So I do not blame him for being angry. However, that being said, I will say I have seen raw footage of his performance where he's doing the dialogue and he sounds, let's say his voice is very light and he's not very foreboding or imposing. So I don't blame the studio for dubbing over his voice, but I do blame them for not informing him that uh, he would be replaced or his voice would be replaced. So there's that. Um, very interesting fact, which I liked a lot. Um, Slimer was included because of the over-the-top test scores that Slimer got in the first Ghostbusters film. Audiences loved Slimer. Now, what's very interesting is that you'll notice that Janine, the secretary, played by Annie Potts, who was wonderful in both films, um, she had a little bit of a, a look makeover. There's a reason for that. If you'll remember, there was a highly successful animated TV series called The Real Ghostbusters, which happened to be going on at the very same time. This was a big hit, and the studio wanted to engage the younger viewers who were already watching this cartoon to come and watch the sequel. So what they did was structure Janine to look more like her cartoon counterpart. They also included Slimer for that very same reason, since Slimer was a big hit in the animated series. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that in the test audience um, reviews during the sequel or afterward, after they had watched the sequel, they said Slimer didn't really move the needle for them. It, it didn't necessarily uh, cause them to want to run out and see the film. Um, I'm not a big fan of changing characters' look to an extreme, so I think they could have kept Annie Potts' original look. I think audiences were intelligent enough to differentiate between cartoon and live action, so I, I didn't really feel like she needed a makeover, but the studios had their reasons, and let's face it, money talks all the time. 
Bottom line is they want to make a profit. Uh, what's really interesting is the Scolari brothers, who were the ghost twins that the in the courtroom scene that show up and try to harass the judge, were actually based on the Blues Brothers, which of course was Dan Aykroyd and his late partner, John Belushi. Now, interestingly enough, John Belushi, I should say Slimer, was based on John Belushi because John Belushi was being touted to be in the original Ghostbusters, taking the role that Bill Murray ended up obviously playing due to John Belushi's passing. But um, I could have definitely seen John Belushi in Ghostbusters, but Ghostbusters itself would not have been the same without Bill Murray. Let's face it. Let's just be real on that. Um, I love this fact. Now, this is, to me, extremely interesting. So, for those of you who have seen Ghostbusters 2, there is a party scene where there are rude children and Dan Aykroyd and Ernie Hudson are trying to entertain them. And there's one child that comes forward and says that they're full of crap. This particular child happens to be Jason Reitman, who is the son of Ivan Reitman. Now, what is extremely interesting is that Jason Reitman is being touted, well, I should say is being touted, has already completed being the director of Ghostbusters Afterlife. So how's that for full circle? The child who is the bratty kid in Ghostbusters 2 goes on to direct the third installment, which is Ghostbusters Afterlife. Um, Peter McNichol. He is a very funny comedic actor. To me, he was, and I remember thinking this at the time, especially um, when I was dipping into my acting career at the time in the late 80s. Um, Peter McNichol, who played... Well, I shouldn't say dipping into my acting career. I was interested in performing, but I hadn't really begun it until later 90s. But um, Peter McNichol was a very funny comedic actor. Some of you will remember him as the camp counselor in The Addams Family Values and in Mr. Bean. He's just really funny. And he just completely stole the film comedically. Um, he was great. And they originally wanted Janos to be this straight-laced art museum curator that Dana works with. And in the script, his name was not Janos. It was Jason. And of course, McNichol pitched a more comedic take on the character, which what I loved included making him Carpathian and thus he had a more deeper connection with Vigo, who of course ends up possessing him in the film. Apparently, Ivan Reitman just absolutely went crazy for this idea and allowed McNichol to portray the movie to portray the character as he saw fit within the film. And I thought that was absolutely a brilliant idea because, of course, he later went on to have outstanding reviews for this role. Now, here's something I don't think a lot of people know. Initially, Ghostbusters 2 was going to feature a supporting role from a very well-known comedic actor who we all know from Waiting for Guffman, many movies with John Candy, and of course Schitt's Creek, 
That would be Eugene Levy. And Eugene Levy was going to play the cousin of Rick Moranis, who of course was Lewis in the film, and he was going to be named Sherman. And he worked at the mental institute where the Ghostbusters were committed midway through the film, and the character had a key role in getting them released. Now, unfortunately for Levy, all of his scenes wound up getting cut on the editing floor. And that kind of sucked. But I guess they felt that the movie was going in too much of a different direction and they wanted to keep the focus on the Ghostbusters. And I believe, from what I had read, that they wanted to give a little more screen time to Bill Murray and Sigourney Weaver. Um, Let's face it, they they really want to give Bill Murray as much screen time as possible. It's no secret. Um, But Eugene Levy's role wasn't the only thing shot for Ghostbusters 2, which wound up being cut. As I mentioned before, when the initial cut was done of the film, Ghostbusters cast and crew realized that their final shot of the film didn't work, the one, the, the giant battle in the museum. As a result of this, Ivan Reitman called the shots on four days of reshoots in which they completely reshot the entire last 25 minutes of the film and added new scenes. From what I remember, the test audiences felt that the final battle with the Ooze and Vigo just wasn't compelling enough. It didn't really want to make root them on. And uh, I believe they added the scene with the Statue of Liberty, um, which we all know in the film is doused with positive slime. Uh, Interesting fact that the audience also, in the test screenings, um, were not aware that the slime could be positively and negatively charged based on the human emotions around them. So that's another area that Ivan wanted um, more clarity on. So he added that scene where they had some slime in a jar and they were talking to it and playing music to it and it starts acting kind. So when you see that in the film, no, that was a result of, hey, we got to make this a lot more clear because the audiences are like, what the, you know what? Um, Very sad fact, but true. The actor who played Oscar, of course, is the baby in the movie. I believe his name is Hank. Now, forgive me, because I might butcher this pronunciation. Easy for me to say. Deutschendorf. I believe his name was Hank Deutschendorf. Well, sadly, he obviously, as I mentioned, he played Dana Barrett's son in the film Oscar. Um, he was one of... Two twins. I shouldn't say two twins. He was he was one of a set of twins, Hank and William Deutschendorf. And one of them took his own life. And that's very sad. Hank had apparently struggled with severe mental illness and he took his own life in 2017 at the young age of only 29 years old. Since then, his brother William has gone on to promote mental awareness. And I thought that was really cool. But The fact that I don't think many people do know is that they were the nephews of folk singer John Denver. So I thought that was pretty cool. Who knew that Oscar was John Denver's nephew? 
Um, as for the soundtrack of the film, Bobby Brown was actually a hot act at the time, believe it or not. And I believe the soundtrack, if I remember correctly, I literally do not have notes written down, so bear with me, um, spent 20 weeks at the, at the pop charts at, 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 if it wasn't number one, it was like in the top 10. And to be honest, they, they kind of wanted to, you know, get the, uh, soundtrack in as cheaply as possible. Luckily, Bobby Brown happened to be an outrageously big fan of the Ghostbusters franchise and agreed to compose the soundtrack and perform for a small role in the film. So, of course, he ultimately plays the doorman at uh, one of the Ghostbusters building. I believe it's Dana Barrett's building, but I could be wrong. And hence, that is why Bobby Brown has that small role in the film And we all know his classic song, On Our Own, is kind of the pulse of Ghostbusters 2. I thought that was a really cool uh, cool little tidbit. Um, And I am a big fan of that song, just for that particular film. Um, Bobby Brown's another matter. Everybody has their own opinions on Bobby Brown. But... um, That is Ghostbusters 2 in a nutshell. Of course, as I mentioned before, it wasn't a, at the time, a smash hit. It was considered, again, a a critical and box office failure by audience test scores and by studios. Of course, it has bounced back and through merchandising, through video games, through, you know, pop culture, Ghostbusters 2 has found its footing. And I think today it's considered a pretty decent sequel and follow-up. And and again, we're also talking five years from the original film. And Dan Aykroyd always said he wished he could have gotten a deal together to do a sequel sooner. And there was a video game produced by Dan Aykroyd and, of course, the studio. And I don't remember the exact company that created the game, but he said he considered... The video game, a strong sequel to Ghostbusters. He said that would be the third film and the film coming out Afterlife would, in Dan Aykroyd's mind, be considered the fourth film. But I'm very excited to see Ghostbusters Afterlife. I do have my reservations. I hope it's not a um, Stranger Things knockoff. Um, I, I really do. I hope it can capture the feel of the original film's And you know what? Either way, it's Ghostbusters. If I could just add one final personal thought, I really wish that my friend Jennifer Runyon could have appeared in Ghostbusters Afterlife because not only is she a wonderful human being and a very talented actress, but she really would have helped flow the continuity between the first film all the way to the third film. And I think she could have been like a terrible psychic in one of the scenes. And uh, it would have been really cool. But you know what? That was Ghostbusters 2 in a nutshell. Stay tuned for Ghostbusters Afterlife being released, I believe, this November. So when it's released, let's uh, come back. Let's discuss it. Send me some emails on what you thought of the film. And please send me some emails on what you thought of the second Ghostbusters film. Until then... This is Brian Hobson speaking for Footsteps in the Attic. We'll see you next week.